0: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, those of you who are here and, and watching online, it's great to be back with you again. And uh, I love Baptism Sundays. I, 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 I know it's Saturday. I love Baptism Saturdays now. I just love, I, as an older brother in Christ, Ching Ching, I, I am so proud of you. Um, oh, man, it's me choked up. You know, just, it's, it's, hard, it's hard living for Christ at any age, but it's especially hard when you're a 14-year-old and your testimony was wonderful. Paul writes in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 that it's only by way of the Spirit that we can say Jesus is Lord and mean it. And so the very fact that you can can testify that Jesus is your Lord is just evidence that the Holy Spirit has got a hold of your life, and you are now sealed in Him. Uh, Your future is certain, and your, your eternity is set, and so... Thanks for allowing me to be a part of this, it's, it's great, so, oh man, I get choked up on that stuff, so it's all your fault. <laughs> um, I, if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of James, James chapter 1, we're looking at the first four verses of, of this epistle, uh, let me just, I'll just begin by reading verse 1 and then I'm going to stop and pray and then we'll start walking through a short but just jam-packed, jam-packed text. James chapter 1 begins, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Let's just stop here and pray. Father, now as as we come to your word, and this indeed is your word, every curve, every dot of every letter inspired by you, and so we come humbly, we come uh, urgently uh, we come dependently. We ask that your spirit, that you sent the spirit, the same spirit who inspired this book, will illuminate the things that are for us today in it. Teach us, correct us, reprove us, train us by way of this text, which is such a, an important text, I think, for all of us in the times in which we live. And I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what we discover when we just enter this epistle is that James is the writer of it. It's the letter that bears his name. But what James are we talking about? Well, very quickly, we're talking about James, the half-brother of Jesus. And so a son, another son of Mary and Joseph, uh, he's described in other places as a a pillar in the early church, Um, meaning he is a leader of leaders who had the nickname Righteous, great nickname. His nickname was Righteous, and yet, in spite of all of that, he describes himself in verse 1 simply as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, He tells us that he is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, meaning Jewish Christians who had been dispersed. But why? Well, dispersed some by choice, certainly, but most of them dispersed coming out of the persecution of Christians in places like Jerusalem and Judea. So these are individuals whose homeland was, or at least home city, was the city of Jerusalem or the region of Judea. And they have now dispersed. They've gone to places outside of those reasons. And again, coming by way of the persecution brought on by individuals like Saul, who later became Paul, the most, most dramatic event leading to the dispersion is something recorded at the end of Acts chapter 7 leading into Acts chapter 8, and that is the stoning of Stephen. So that just sort of sets things up. So understanding that their dispersion comes by way of persecution, it, it shouldn't surprise us then that James begins his letter by talking about trials. I mean, why why not address what's on everybody's mind? So let's Hit it right from the beginning. It seems to be James' desire. Been through any trials lately? I mean, pretty stupid question, right? We're we're living, we're living through trials right now. So when Wes gave me the freedom to choose whatever text to speak on, my mind immediately went to James chapter one. Even, even if selfishly, it's for my own sake, because what we read here needs to be reminded, reminded to all of us. What we're going to find in the three verses that follow the. First one is James features three ways in these three verses that faith, and and we need to understand what we talk about when we talk about faith in terms of the context of this book. Faith, real faith, working faith, saving faith, what that type of faith, how that type of faith responds to trials. That's that's the three verses. So if you like taking notes, here's the first way that real faith responds to trials. We see this in verse 2. It responds with rejoicing. Let me read the first. James continues here Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Um, If you've ever studied the book of James, James is full of exhortation, it's full of instruction. This is the first of 54 instructions found in James, and this is. This is what he begins with, count it all joy, consider it joy, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not exactly what we want to hear though, right? Count it all joy. In fact, honestly, if if we were to truly be honest in this, I think at some point when we've considered this exhortation, our our response has been at least in part, this is not. Honestly, this this is nuts. Count it all joy when I encounter trials. Count it all joy when I just lost my job. You're telling me to do that. Count it all joy when the doctor says it's terminal. Count it all joy when I'm alone most of the time. Count it all joy when my husband thinks I'm in a cult. Count it all joy in the midst of a pandemic. Norm, James, what are you talking about? When we can't see family members, when we're, when we're losing opportunities, when we can't gather, when, when people are losing jobs, when some people that we know have, have perhaps lost their lives as a result. Count it, all, count it all joy. Or in the case of James' readership, I've just been run out of my hometown, my homeland, family behind Career behind. I'm running for my life. I'm scared for my life. And you're telling me to count it all joy, James. Well, a couple of cursory or introductory points to note about this instruction before we go any further. Here's the first James is not alone in giving it. We see this instruction throughout the New Testament text. For example, Paul writes, In Romans 5, 3, we rejoice in our suffering. Peter instructs in 1 Peter 4 to rejoice that you share in Christ's suffering. And then Jesus himself in, in Matthew 5, he declares, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So so James isn't alone. We, We see this theme come up again and again in the New Testament text. Here's a second thing to note about this instruction. The word here used for trials refers to anything having to do with pressure or trouble or tribulation and difficulty. The word literally means multicolored. In other words, trials come colored in many different ways they they can be colored emotional they can be colored physical or relational or financial or or even familial as we just read from from the mouth of jesus coming out of the sermon on the mount they they also come as the result of our testimony of jesus when others revile and hate us because we say we're christian they can come in the extremes of martyrdom or an eye roll at work when you tell a coworker that you follow Jesus. So some basic comments about this instruction. But let's go deeper and ask, what does counted all joy mean? What does it mean to count things, count these trials in all joy? Well, I'll answer by telling you what it doesn't. It doesn't mean the absence of tears and lament and mourning. Paul, after all, calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep while also calling us to rejoice always again, I will say, rejoice. So it doesn't mean the absence of tears and mourning and grieving and, and lament. When we encounter loss and death, it's true, we aren't to mourn as those who have no hope, but we are still to mourn, yes? Isaiah describes Jesus as a man of sorrow. Romans 8.23 tells us that we will groan on this side of heaven. That we join all creation in growing, longing for the day when Jesus returns. There's a book in the Bible, for crying out loud, called Lamentations. And so it can't mean the absence of those things. Additionally, it doesn't mean the absence of why questions. The book of Psalms is full of why questions. There's there's a majority of the Psalms are called Psalms of Lament, where questions like, why, God, do you seem so silent? Why, God, are you seemingly uninvolved? Why don't you do something? Why why are my prayers just hitting the ceiling? Why, God? Why is my life spinning out of control while those you hate prosper? It's a constant question in the Psalms. How about questions more close to home? Why, Why will Christian... Brothers and sisters today be executed while the biggest decision for most of us when we leave here is what are we going to do for lunch? Why can disbelieving and detached parents raise such great kids while some praying and loving parents have kids go so far off the rails? Questions like that. Why can't some, and I've met these individuals in in my ministry experience, why can't some godly women who who desperately want to get pregnant but can't while almost 100,000 abortions take place in Canada every year? Why God? Why am I going through this? Why is my child going through this? Lastly, Counting it all joy doesn't mean the absence of deliverance cries, not just cries of why God, but God, would you please get me out of this? Jesus himself pleaded in the garden, Father, if there is another way, if there is another way, please remove this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. In in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about a thorn in in the flesh that had been given to him, and he. He describes how he pleaded three times for the Lord to remove it. And so it doesn't include those things. Why questions, questions, questions of, of removal, and then attitudes of, of grief and mourning in the midst of, of counting it all joy. So that's, not, that's what it doesn't mean, but let's flip it around and go, well, how then does one count it all joy when encountering times of, of various trials? I'll give you a handful. First, we count it all joy by not being surprised when trials come. In language that's similar to James, Peter writes, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Jesus promises that in the world you will have tribulation. And this is a a vital point under the discussion of how we count it all joy because so many, too many, even in the church, think that this shouldn't be happening to me. In fact, some of us have listened to teachers or perhaps even self-taught ourselves to think that, that a person of faith should have all of these difficulties removed, all financial needs, physical needs, marital strife, loneliness. That shouldn't be a part of our lives. And yet, what we read again and again is we should not be surprised when trials come. Don't be surprised. It begins there. We count it all joy when we're not surprised. In fact, in fact we should be expectant because being a devoted follower of Jesus in our world will... We'll invite them, so don't be surprised. A a, a second way that we can count it all joy is by not being embittered when they come. Here's the danger of being embittered when trials come, um, when you feel like you deserve something more. Bitterness is a natural byproduct. I deserve this, why am I going through this? And we become embittered. We think we deserve something else. This is the model of Cain. We get this early on in the, in the story of, of God. Bitterness towards his brother, but ultimately bitterness towards God. And what does God say to Cain when he's in that place? Cain. Sin is crouching at the door, which is what sin does, by the way. Sin usually crouches. Kind of hides itself. It's ready to pounce. And God says to Cain, Cain, Don't let this rule you. But Cain, he he let it rule him. Out of that bitterness leading to the murder of his brother. So don't be embittered. Don't be embittered. Thirdly, we count it all joy by not being in denial. Uh, what, What do I mean by this? Well, I've seen this oftentimes, and perhaps you've seen it oftentimes as well, where people will simply say, simply say, oh, things going on in my life are no big deal. It's no big deal. But I will simply say in response that there is nothing godly about pretending that that difficulties aren't being experienced. We we shouldn't be surprised. They come, and there is nothing godly about pretending that they aren't. We need to have the freedom to say, this is a pressure on me right now. I'm feeling burdened because of this right now. I, I, I'm spending time in, in mourning and tears with tears right now. There, again, there's nothing godly about pretending that they're not there. Another way of counting it all joy is by not necessarily being somber. Uh, this is the flip side of the previous point. This is This is the person who feels like if I'm going through a difficulty, it would be wrong for me to express joy in the midst of it. I'll just keep that joy to myself. But there are times, and this is the wonder of the Spirit's work in our lives, there are times when visible and outward expressions of joy and gladness in the midst of great trials will and should be expressed. They just should be. Where people go, What is going on with you? How can you express that in the midst of what you're going through? That that the joy we're to have isn't only an internal experience, but an outward expression. Not not as a charade, but as a sign of the supernatural in us. Inexpressible gladness. A peace beyond comprehension. a, A joy that evidences... The, the presence of the divine nature in us. I mean, the second fruit of the Spirit is joy. Joy. There is a, um, a great scenario, a great event that takes place recorded in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 5, later on in the chapter, where Peter and some other apostles are arrested. They're brought before the Sanhedrin. They're commanded, instructed to no longer talk, no longer share share to the masses about Jesus they are flogged, they are beaten and then they're sent away and this is what we read in Acts chapter 5 verse 41 then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name that makes zero sense that makes zero sense that's not natural and that's right that's supernatural. That's a sign of the Spirit working in the Apostle's life. And so, so don't necessarily be somber. Uh, d- don't push that down. Um, it's a testimony of, of something great going on in your, in your spirit. So, so first, real faith responds with rejoicing. After all, self, self-loathing and self-pity... As an aside comment, evidence that we don't get grace. But real faith responds with rejoicing. But, but second, looking at verse three, real faith responds with recognition. Let me read the let me read the verse. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The, here's why verse three is so important. You can't do verse two without verse three. What verse 3 is, you recognize what this trial that you're going through is going to produce in you. We'll see that in even greater measure in verse 4. So so James is not saying rejoice in the trial or the test or the tribulation or the persecution in and of itself, but rejoice because of what it's producing in you. That's That's his instruction. So it responds with recognition. There's something going on. There's something taking place. Now, I want to be very careful at this point, for the Bible doesn't tell us why we go through the specific trials we go through. It doesn't, t- so if my, my, my uh, cousin, my favorite cousin, the cousin I'm closest to, uh, just was, uh, uh, was given the, what's the word I'm looking for? Just, she, she has cancer. She's been told that she has, has cancer, and I went and saw her. Um, and we were talking through it, and and inevitably the question, why? I don't know why you have cancer. I know why there is cancer. I don't know why you have cancer. The Bible doesn't answer that for us, but it does tell us why we go through these trials, tests, in general. Let me give you a couple reasons why. The first is to test our faith. Trials test our heart. Trials call our faith to the witness stand. Trials test whether or not we believe what we say, quite simply. Trials trials evidence our identity, don't they? Like what's going on beneath the surface? Trials reveal impurities, that's what they do. So I don't know why, you go, why I go through specific things, but I do, know, I do know in general why trials come. And here's the thing. We want this. In, the, in our heart of hearts, we want this. If we are saved by grace through faith, don't we want to know if our faith is real? There is such a thing as a vain belief. Believing in vain. And if it is real, don't we want it to grow? As someone has said, untested faith is no better than untested love. I mean, easy to say I love you when the music's playing and she's, you know, throwing bonbons in your mouth, right? I mean, it's easy to say I love you at that time, but it's another thing altogether to say I love you when the baby's crying, when there's more month left than money, and so on. Same with faith. It's easy to say I love Jesus when you're sitting around a campfire singing Kumbaya with 10 other Christians. But it's another thing altogether when our health is bad, or or mockery is coming even by those in your own family. So it tests our faith. If you you know um, anything about uh, taking a college course, university course, seminary course, there's two ways that you can take a class. You You can take a class for credit, or you can audit a class. Auditing a class is great. Auditing a a class is is you you get to go to class, you get to listen to the speaker or the teacher or the prof, you get to hang out with the other students, you even get to read a book or two if you want to. But here's the great thing about auditing. You don't have to take any of the tests. Too, Too many Christians today are trying to audit the Christian life. They like the speaker. They like the teacher. They like the other students. They like the discussion. They like the book. Don't really want the test, though. Don't want the test. But that's not the Christian life. Listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1. In this you rejoice. There's our word again. Though now for a little while, if necessary, and it is, you have been grieved by various trials so that, hear what Peter says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and this testing that comes isn't simply whether or not we believe in God, as James goes and writes about in the, in the next chapter, demons even believe in God and they shudder. But our testing is whether or not you'll believe in his ongoing goodness and, and faithfulness and provision. That's the test. At least in part, that's the test. So I... Have to ask the obvious question, do you? Do you? Or maybe, maybe even more important, the question at this time in our lives is, are you? Are you right now trusting in the goodness, the provision, and the faithfulness of God? I mean, heart of hearts. Don't let the question flow over, you, flow over top. Heart of hearts, are you? Are you? So it's given, tests are given to test our, test our faith. Secondly, they're given to produce steadfastness in us. We see this word steadfastness come up Uh, Twice, at the end of verse 3, and then we'll read read about it again in verse 4. The the word steadfastness, and it may be translated with the word perseverance in in your Bible, is made up of two Greek words that speak of remaining under. The word produce or produce speaks of working something out completely. So so put them together, and the call here in verse 3 is to remain under whatever trial comes our way until it's had its full effect on us. Yes, I, as I said a moment ago, it's, it's okay to cry out for deliverance. But if God wills us to remain, then we remain and trust in the goodness of God. We remain there, rejoicing there until the full effect of the test has transpired. And that, that's why the word produce or produce is appropriate. You ever picked a piece of fruit, taken a bite out of it before it's ripe? It's not great. That's the idea here. Don't pick the fruit before it's ripe. It's, it's still a piece of fruit, but it's not all that it could be. Here's the truth we're all fruits. Every single one of us, and what you taste like, what we are to taste like, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Fruit of the spirit—that's what we're to taste like—and not flowers of the spirit, right? Fruit, fruit of the spirit, right? I borrow this idea, but. Um, if I were to walk into your kitchen and you had a bowl of fruit there um, and I grabbed one of the pieces of fruit and start eating it, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be surprised. You may, may want me to ask before I started eating the fruit that's on you, but you wouldn't be surprised because fruit's to be shared, right? But if I walked into your same kitchen and you had a vase full of flowers there and I just grabbed a bunch of flowers and walked out, you'd be surprised, right? Why? Because flowers are meant to be looked at. Fruits meant to be shared, fruit of the Spirit shared with others. We are to taste good. We're to taste good, smell good, and so forth. So, so how does faith, real faith, saving faith, respond to trials? It responds, number one, with rejoicing. Number one, rejoicing. But number two, rejoicing because we recognize what it's producing in us and what it will produce if we remain under it, if God so wills. And finally, it responds unto completion. Take a look at verse four. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, in in context, what James is talking about here is spoken of in other places in the in the New Testament uh, re- regarding Christian maturity. What Paul speaks of in Ephesians four thirteen as mature manhood, mature womanhood. I mean, we all know that the end the end goal of life, the Christian life, isn't success but character. That, that's what this is being referred to here. This is what's being talked about, this perfection, this completion. And we know perfection and completion come when we see Jesus face to face, but we're on that road already because God has already started working in us. In, in my prep for this message, I, I discovered that the testing, that the testing that James refers to in verse 3 has its root in um, the practice of refining gold Peter uses that same imagery. When a goldsmith tested and refined gold, he would melt it down and purify it by scraping off the impurities that would rise to the surface. And he would do that, keep on scraping, scraping, scraping until he came to a place where he could see his face in the gold. That's what verse 4 is. When trials and tests, hear me, when trials and tests are responded to with rejoicing and recognition as God works in us, the end end result will be maturity with the completed work being lives that reflect Jesus. That's verses two to four. So there you go. When you encounter trials of various colors, however they're being colored in your life right now, And all of us have pressure right now. All of us carry something right now. All of us are being tested to varying degrees right now. So how does real faith respond? It responds with rejoicing, recognition, unto completion. But here's the thing. As I I close... I feel it's necessary to say one last thing on the topic of faith, and it may sound strange after all I've just said. But the last thing I want to talk about, share with you as I wrap up, is we can make, in the church, we can make an idol out of faith. In fact, in the church, and this is certainly true, uh, in, the, in the world around us as well, we can, it's possible to even become proud because of our faith. I mean, you ever watched maybe something on TV or on, on, on your computer, wherever, and somebody's gone through a hard time, they go, how did you get through this hard time? And the response is something like, my faith got me through it. Or, on the flip side, We beat ourselves up because at times we feel such lack of faith. Here's here's what you need to know about faith. Faith is only as strong as what it has faith in. Faith is only as strong as where it's directed, and thus your faith never saves you. What your faith is directed towards saves you. This is is highlighted in a strange back and forth between the disciples and Jesus in in Luke chapter 17. In Luke chapter 17, verse 5, the disciples cry out to Jesus, increase our faith. I mean, it's a wonderful cry. It should be a prayer of all of us. "I, I, I disbelieve, Lord, help my belief. Increase our faith. Great request. It should be a constant request that we all have. But how does Jesus respond to them? Jesus responds to them by sharing an illustration that downplays the importance of faith. That's how he responds. And this is what he says. If you had, you want increased faith? If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. We want more faith. If, if you have this much faith directed towards God, you could tell a tree to go plant itself in Pacific, the Pacific Ocean this afternoon. That's what Jesus says. Why am I ending this way? I'm ending this way because some of you have mustard seed size faith right now. You're just hanging on, man. And there's a chance that that message that I just gave, walking through, talking about what real faith looks like, has beaten you up more than anything else. And you're crying out, increase my faith because I'm just hanging on. Increase my faith. And it's a great cry. It's a great cry. But maybe what you need to hear most of all at this point in time is that it's better to have a mustard seed-sized faith in a big God than big faith in your faith. After all, One of the beautiful themes that weaves its way through the book of Hebrews is that living by faith is better and more certain than even living by sight, all because of whom we have faith in. And therefore, as I close, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. And, and so, Jesus, our, our cry is the same cry as the disciples. Increase our faith, but, but. May we always recognize, constantly believe, that even, even little faith in you is enough, is enough that it doesn't rest on us. Our lives rest in you. And so I do pray, I have to believe that there are people that are going to watch this, perhaps people who are here in this room right now who are just hanging on, like they are going through a fiery trial, whether it's the result of COVID or something a consequence coming out of it, job loss, fighting depression, doubt, familial strife, uncertainty. And so they're being tested. We all are to certain degrees being tested. And so I pray, I pray that they would cast their eyes back to you, Jesus, fix their eyes on you, Jesus. Again, the author, he's the beginner, you're the beginner and the perfecter, the completer of our faith. And and when we come out of times of of struggle and when we're full, I mean, we are full of faith, we are feeling strong, may we be quick to encourage those who aren't, to to support, to, to pray, to remind, to exhort, to encourage them to not give up, not to lose hope. But instead, count it all joy, because this is going to produce something in you. It's refining you, so that more of Jesus will be displayed in you. Help us. Help us, Jesus. Help us. By way of the Spirit you sent, help us. And by the body of Christ around us, help us. In in your name I pray. Amen. Amen.